0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and uh, it has been a while. I did put out a video a couple of days ago um, entitled Apologetics 101. I was feeling kind of... uh, 101-ish, you know, putting out some introductory stuff. I Sometimes I hear uh, folks who listen to my channel, they really enjoy the content, but sometimes it's a little advanced. We do cover some things like transcendental arguments and preconditions of intelligibility and the philosophical problem of the one and the many. I get it. So I figured, you know what, let me make something introductory and uh, put it out there and hopefully some folks could, could benefit from it. So I hope that was useful uh, to folks. Oh, I'm happy to be back again. I think we're going to have more of a consistent um, uh, schedule coming up. I have uh, Doug Powell on uh, with me here today to talk about the Shroud of Turin. I have on Friday the, what's the date on Friday? That's the 29th. I'll be having two gentlemen who are deacons at the Apologia Church in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I think it's Phoenix, Arizona. It's in Arizona. Uh, It's a church where James White attends, right? There are two deacons who... Um, Apologia Church hosted a debate uh, between them and uh, two Mormons. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about how to apply presuppositional apologetics to Mormonism. So I'm really excited to have uh, those gentlemen on, on Friday. And then the next week, I'll be having my good friend uh, Braxton Hunter on to talk about uh, worship music, uh, modern worship music, doesn't matter Uh, you know, with respect to the types of songs that we sing. So that's going to be a super interesting, um, you know, topic. Perhaps we'll be talking a little bit about the theology behind music. Um, I'll also be on Matt Slick's show. Um, Matt Slick is the president of CARM, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. And I will be um, talking with uh, Matt about the problem of the one and the many. So he invited me on his show to talk about that, and uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be live or not. But whenever it's up, I'll, I'll let folks know. If you want to follow uh, follow me around as I uh, am invited to speak on other uh, other platforms, um, and I don't remember the date, but someone I was on a show, I think it was last week or a week before that, to talk about presuppositional apologetics. But we ended up talking about. Calvinism. And so uh, I forgot the name of the show. if If those guys who had me on are listening, I apologize,, uh, but they've invited me back on um, to talk about Calvinism. And so uh, I'm excited to be able to do that uh, on their show. I don't know the date, but when I find out, I will let folks know, post it on Facebook and and social media. I also am planning to do my epic Calvinism live stream where I'm gonna attempt uh, to drink lots of coffee energize myself and go through all five points of Calvinism. So it's going to be pretty long. Uh, We're going to go through total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And I'm just going to blab about it. And I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, Hopefully it'll be a a big chunky episode, but uh, will be useful for folks. I know um, whether you love Calvinism or you hate Calvinism, it is always an interesting uh, and fun topic to talk about. So looking forward to that. Well, without further ado, I would like to introduce my uh, guest today, Doug Powell. Doug Powell is a Christian apologist. I've had him on before. Um, uh, I don't know how many episodes ago. It was a a little while ago, but I had him on before. Uh, Doug is a Christian apologist. He's an author, a graphic designer, programmer, and recording artist. He's appeared on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, CNN, NPR, World Cafe, Primetime America, The White Horse Inn, Stand to Reason, and Sound Reason. His books include the best selling Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics, Resurrection Eyewitness, an interactive book on the minimal facts argument for the historical evidence for the resurrection, and Jesus Eyewitness, an interactive book on the life of Christ. He is also a contributor to the Apologetic Study Bible and the Apologetic Study Bible for students. In addition, Doug is the designer of the Resurrection Eyewitness iPad app. It's been out for a while. I'm not sure if it's still available, but when it was available, I'm not sure if it still is. It was pretty awesome. I had it. It was it was really helpful. Uh, I have here, as a recording artist, Powell has released nine albums, including The Apprentice's uh, Sorcerer, which gives the transcendental argument for God, as told, as a magic show and set to music. Doug holds a master's in apologetics from Biola University. Now, if you are interested, I know folks who follow my channel. Um, we uh, place a great emphasis upon presuppositional apologetics, and so Doug is also a presuppositionalist. Um, so I thought it would be fun to uh, have a presuppositionalist talk about uh, a topic that is typically used by evidentialists, um, and even that they do it cautiously because we know uh, the shroud of Turn is a very controversial uh, controversial topic. So. Without further ado, I'm looking forward to getting into the weeds on this topic with Doug, and so I would like to invite Doug on the screen with me. How's it going?
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> You're on now. I, I gave you no warning. I just thrusted you on the screen there. <laughs> All right. Well, did I did I miss anything? I remember giving the introductions on you a hmm. while back, and sometimes information goes out of date a little bit. So,
1: uh, No, I guess that's uh, none of that has expired. But um, okay. I've got I've got a couple songs on the new Alan Parsons record that'll be out uh, later this summer. OK. And so, uh, so, and my so, son was on Jimmy Fallon last night. He plays oh, with a band wow, called okay. Soccer Mommy. So,
0: oh, what, what was the topic? Uh, it was
1: well using a band called Soccer Mommy and they played their new single Shotgun.
0: Nice. Awesome. Very cool. So, the, All right. Topic, well, um, topic is rock and roll. Okay. Okay. So you play instrument. Do you dance at all? Are you a dancer?
1: No, no. Rock musicians don't dance.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's fair. Well, I'm (laughs) Puerto Rican and I'm supposed to know how to dance, but I can't Um, Ah. uh, because I'm Puerto Rican. When I dance, even if it's bad, people think it's actually dancing because it's like, well, he's Hispanic. That's, that's got to be a move.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sharks were great dancers in West side story.
0: There so. you go. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about the shroud of Turin today. And um, maybe, maybe we'll come to some conclusion. Uh, uh, you know, um, Doug could share his thoughts as to what he thinks about um, the shrouds authenticity, but for folks who, um, who have been living under a, uh, rock or or maybe have never heard of it, let's kind of go through some basic beginner questions and then kind of go into more detail. So why don't you describe for folks who may not know, what what is the Shroud of Turin and why is it a big deal for a lot of people?
1: Uh, The Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth. It's about 14 and a half feet long and three and three quarters feet wide. And it is in Turin, Italy, in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. And uh, it has been in Europe since at least the year 1355. And it has been believed beginning at least then to have been the cloth that uh, was wrapped around Jesus's body when he was when he was buried. And Mm. what makes it so fascinating is there's there's a lot of stains and stuff on it. But uh, among the stains, there is kind of this vague uh, shadowy form of a man uh and it's uh and you see both the front and the back of the man because of the way the shroud was wrapped around him and uh it's just this indistinct thing and nobody can uh really figure out how the uh this image got on there Mm -hmm. so uh it, it gets uh, displayed kind of uh, rarely it's, there's no set schedule for its display. It's not permanently on display. So there'll be exhibitions every, you know, 10 or so years and, and you get a very short time in front of it after you stand in line for hours and then you can't really see a whole (laughs) lot. So it's actually best examined in, in photos.
0: Ah, do, do you have a photo of it you'd like to share on the screen? I can make it big if, if folks want to. it As see what a matter looks like. of
1: fact, I do. Uh, and it looks like this. So what you're looking at here is uh, so the top image is how it appears. Uh, to the naked eye. So if you were to go see it, I guess the next time it's on display is is, uh, 2025, I think. But the top image is what you would see with the naked eye. And on the left side, the left half of it, you can see the front side of a body of a man Uh, Laid out with the feet against the short side of the edge of the cloth and the head right in the middle And then the right side is the starting with the head it goes back down to the feet again So it's been draped over the top of the head of the man in the shroud So it's as if the shroud were laid on a burial bench and then a body was laid on top of it And then uh, the uh, other half of the cloth was folded on top of it What you see below is a negative image and this is uh what makes the shroud really fascinating there are uh there are okay i'm i'm a presbyterian presbyterians are not supposed to like relics right (laughs) And, and and calvin has a whole treatise against relics. And he even goes directly after the shroud at one point. And I've been to the Topkapi Palace uh, Museum in Istanbul, and I went into this... This wing called the uh, uh, the sacred chamber and uh, the chamber of sacred relics, and I saw things like a stick that's supposed to be Moses's staff, and uh, a cooking pot that belonged to Abraham, and the sword of King David, and the turban of Joseph, and things like that, and they're they're clearly. Not authentic things, okay, it's like a carnival sideshow in there. And these are are mainly what relics are like, purported relics. They're either so outlandish that they're they're not plausible uh, to be polite. And even if you do come across something that might be authentic, that is like possibly authentic, there's no way you could prove it. You couldn't really investigate for it. How would you ever know that like that staff was Moses's? I mean, what what could you possibly test for? And the, what makes the Shroud of Turin unique is that it is investigatable. You can do scientific tests on it to uh, that that can't be done on any other relic, except right. one. There's an exception, and I, I'll talk about that. But that the Shroud right. is unique among relics because it is an object of scientific investigation, and in fact, it's the most studied. Artifact in the world—that's its reputation, anyway. Um, So, uh, but the the age of scientific investigation started. When uh, it was photographed for the first time and back for those who are too young to remember this back in the days before digital photography, when you took a picture of something, it was, it, 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 it created a negative on the film in the camera. It was the opposite image. Everything that was dark that you took a picture of turned light, everything that was light turned dark. And then you had to take it into a dark room and process it with chemicals and then reverse the image again. To get a print So when this was photographed for the first time In 1898 The guy took uh, his glass Plate negative into the dark room And processed it And that bottom image is what he saw The bottom image is the negative Of the shroud And this is really startling Because not only is it counterintuitive Because the reverse uh, It's a positive image You shouldn't be looking at a positive image In a photographic negative because what it means is that the image of the body on the shroud to the naked eye is a negative image, which it doesn't make any sense. So uh, first off, it's just unexpected. And that startled the guy. But even more startling is the fact that there's so much more detail and clarity when you look at this in negative. And it turns out that the, the man in the shroud has suffered all of the wounds that you read about Jesus suffering in the Gospels. And so now this kicks off the age of scientific investigation of the shroud that is it, that makes it so fascinating. Because now it's, just, it's not just tradition or legend, but now you could really look into it regardless of your uh, religious presuppositions.
0: So, so when you talk about
1: the person, I'm sorry. Here, here, uh, this might be a little clearer for those who are looking at it for the first time. Uh, so you can see the, the the close up of the body uh, as it's as if it were standing up right in front of you, and then that's that famous image of the face. So what you're looking at on the right is the negative image. So there you go. Sorry to interrupt you.
0: No worries. Well, it, it it's what's fascinating. I think is if if it is legitimate. I mean, we have then a photograph of Jesus. <laughs> like, like yeah. If it's legitimate, that that's as in, incredible. Um, yeah. So now you did say that the that on the the cloth there there's evidence that the 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 person who was wrapped in that cloth suffered some of the same injuries that are consistent with with Jesus. Um yes. how do you see that? When you look is this through testing or is it can you see it straight from the cloth that there is uh evidence of maybe piercing in the in the wrists or or bruising on the head or anything like that? How do they determine that?
1: Well, here well here it is. Here's uh I've kind of created a wound map here. So here's what can be seen uh, uh, j- just by examining the photograph. Uh, at the, uh, starting at the top, you have this strange wound pattern at the top of the back of the head that wraps around to the front of the head, and this would uh, correspond to what you would uh, think you'd see it, uh, in terms of wounds from a crown of thorns if the crown of thorns was not shaped like a wreath but more like a dome or a helmet. Set on top of his head, um, there is evidence that the uh, shoulders have abrasions on it, which would correspond to carrying a crossbeam and also scraping against the crossbeam uh, if uh, uh, when if, if this person had been crucified. Um, all these little kind of uh, um, uh, tiny hash marks uh, are. Uh, Uh, or correspond to scourge marks. Now, Roman scourge uh, was done with a flagrum that could take two different kinds of shapes. One would be like you see in The Passion of the Christ, where at the end of the leather tongs you have sharp objects like glass or metal or rocks or something like that. Or it could be uh, done with these dull... almost like sinkers on a a fishing line where it's uh, lead balls that are paired up. So they leave this almost kind of barbell or dumbbell uh, shape. And this is what the man on the shroud has. So he would have been uh scourged with these uh dole weights that left uh, at least two hundred visible marks on the back and hundred and fifty plus on the front and they would have penetrated uh well they would have created a number of contusions before eventually penetrating the skin and that's what you're seeing there uh the the rear end on the uh left side when you're looking at the uh the 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 left image here that's the back side. Uh, the, rear, his, the man's rear end isn't flattened out, which indicates he's in rigor mortis. So he's been dead for 12 to 36 hours. And then if you uh, look around on the front side, you can see that there is a, uh, a a large wound in his right side that corresponds with the spear wound that you read about in the Gospels. Uh, You can see on the wrist, the one visible wrist, there is a large wound where uh, that would correspond with where a nail goes uh, on a crucifixion victim right at the uh, base of the palm top of the wrist. And you can see that uh, from the wrist to the elbow on both arms, you see this trail of blood that goes from the wrist back toward the elbow at about a 20 degree angle, which corresponds to the arms in the position of a crucifixion. Uh, you also see that the one visible hand there with, uh, where you should see a thumb, there's no thumb. That's because in a crucifixion, the nail through the wrist causes nerve damage that makes the thumb turn inward. So it wouldn't be visible in this, p- this position. And look how long the arms are. They're like they're unnaturally long arms. And the reason is because the shoulders are probably dislocated, which is what happens to a crucifixion victim. Uh, the body can't sustain the weight. So the uh, arms, dis- the shoulders dislocate. And that means, in order to exhale, uh, and once they get the, uh, in order to get, the pressure of the chest off the lungs so that the victim could exhale and get another breath of air. They have to push up on the nails going through the feet or the heels, and that's what you see in the, uh, uh, in the bottom there. On both the front and the back, you can see that there's this uh, wound to the foot. So uh, you can see it corresponds very closely to everything you read about in the Gospels.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. So, and I'm thinking in terms of the the wounds of Christ, uh, the piercing of the side, the scourging, uh, the crown of thorns. Um, was it normal practice to beat uh, a person who is going to be crucified? I mean, did they normally just crucify people, and that was horrible just by itself? I mean, or was it? Uh, unique that someone was kind of severely beaten beforehand prior to that, because I guess someone could say, well, let's suppose it's legitimate cloth and, you know, the person has similar wounds. Um, who's to say that that's not someone else who was just beaten and killed in a similar way um, that Jesus was?
1: Uh, uh, probably more times than not, the victim was scourged beforehand in order to weaken them so that they Mm. didn't last uh, as long on the cross. If you were well hydrated and in good shape and well fed and got crucified, then, you know, putting a nail through your wrist is not going to kill you. You die from all sorts of other things. It would be through uh, hypovolemic shock or dehydration, or you know, there's a number of things that that kind of conspire. And uh, it, 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 like I said, if you're in good shape, you could last upwards of a week on the cross. So uh, they to, to scourge someone would significantly hasten their death when they got on the cross. And so that, that is what happened more times than not. But it's not just the, the scourging beforehand uh that would uh okay if the question is How many people suffered these wounds? I mean, lots of, there were tens of thousands of people who were crucified by the Romans. So, how common would it be to have these kind of wounds? And this question was uh, answered by uh, Gary Habermas, who's one of the uh, leading experts in the world on the historical evidence for the resurrection. And uh, he wrote a book. Uh, two books, actually, with a guy named Ken Stevenson, who was the uh, PR guy for a group of scientists called the Shroud of Turin Research Project. They were called STIRP for short. And the STIRP team is who did the most extensive scientific investigation of the Shroud ever allowed, which was done in 1978. And so Habermas and Stevenson together in two different books in the 80s calculated the odds of just seven of the wounds and then uh, they did that in order to calculate the probability that it could be anybody other than Jesus. So, they don't even try to account for all the things we just atta- that, that we just talked about, or everything that you could see on the on the shroud, but just seven things. They looked at the crown of thorns and they they assigned that a probability of one in four hundred because you got to figure the crown of thorns was there to mock Jesus for being king of the Jews, and how many people were executed for being claiming to be the king of something probably not many. And given that there were tens of thousands of people executed by the Romans, that's probably pretty conservative. Uh, there is no indication of decomposition, meaning there's no fluid coming out of the nose or the mouth or any other orifices. There's no sign of put- putrefaction. So that's there's uh, uh, they gave that a 1 in 10. Uh, the Spear Moon, they gave 1 in 27. There, I mean, if you think about, it, I don't want to be too graphic, but there's a lot of places they could have speared the body to see if the if the man on the cross was dead or not. Not just that place, but they wouldn't even you didn't even have to use a spear to do that. There's all sorts of implements you could have used to do that. So one in twenty-seven, probably pretty conservative. Uh, crucified without ropes uh, because the arms were dislocate. It was sometimes uh, the arms would sometimes be tied with ropes onto the crossbeam as well to secure the body because the, the wrists would sometimes pop off the nail heads. There's no indication that that happened to the man in the shroud or any indication that happened to Jesus in the gospel accounts. Uh, Scourge marks, they gave one and two. You got to, you know, they probably more than half of the people who were crucified around that time were scourged beforehand. So that's probably pretty conservative. Uh, No broken legs, they gave that one and three. Jesus was crucified between two other people who both had their legs broken, but his were not. So that's one and three. And then the most conservative one is the buried in a linen shroud, which they gave one and eight. That's super conservative because remember, if there are tens of thousands of people, People being uh, crucified by the Romans in history, uh, c- c- think about how uh, it, in, it, it, the only archaeological evidence we have of any crucifixion victim is we have four skeletons of crucified people. Two of them still had nails going through the heel bones. uh, And, uh, and, and only one of them's from the first century in Judea. One of them was found a few months ago from the second century in Roman Britain. So it's, it was very rare very rare, to give the body back. They were either left on the cross to rot during times of insurrection, or they were put in a common grave. And uh, so to give the body back was highly unusual. It happened far less than one out of eight times. But they gave it one in eight. When you multiply just these seven things together, the odds that it's anybody other than Jesus is one in almost 83 million.
0: Wow. Wow. That's interesting. So Okay, so if you could pop yourself up back on the screen there, you got the image there. Um, I don't want to ask the question while looking possibly at Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, okay, so I know that there's a – first of all, let me say this. If anyone has any questions for Doug, um, he will be taking questions if, the, if there are any. So just make sure you preface your question with the word question so that I could differentiate them. Um, also, if you think this is a load of bunk, ask a question this is this is, this is interesting you know um, I'm sure we know we can not be hundred percent sure about these sorts of things but I mean it's an interesting topic and there are some people who um, who think it's legitimate want to hear the the arguments of both sides so if you have a question or a critique or, or an objection or anything like that uh, feel free to ask them in the comments and and uh, just preface your question comment or whatever uh, with the word question or comment or argument or objection or whatever the case may be um, all right so um th- the natural skeptical response is this is a forgery, right? This can be, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, easily forged. Now, if you can put yourself, we know as presuppositionalists, when we engage with unbelievers and we're arguing worldviews, right? We argue that the the only legitimate way to critique someone is to hypothetically jump into their worldview and do an internal critique, right? Um, So perhaps you can do that here. If you could step into the shoes of the skeptic, the knowledgeable skeptic who's aware of the studies and these sorts of things. Can you spend a few moments going uh, through how you would debunk this based upon some of the best arguments out there against its legitimacy? And then after that, perhaps we can go into some of the specific um, studies and, and, and strongest pieces of evidence that people actually think this is legitimate.
1: Well, it's probably better to do the uh, the remainder of the evidence first and then okay. talk about potential theories. And the reason is because there are all sorts of kind of like um, the, uh, you know, common sense theories that you could put forward just based on what you've seen right now. But it doesn't come a close to accounting for the evidence that was particularly developed by the STIRP team. And the reason why that's important is because the STIRP team, this this group of scientists from 1978, and they were a group of 30, uh, 33 American scientists and they get sometimes. Sometimes they're mischaracterized as a group of uh, Christians who just went over there to verify what they already decided they were gonna believe that this was authentic. And it's that's not true. Okay, not uh, uh, the majority of these thirty-three uh, scientists were. Uh, self-identified as Christians, but they didn't all agree on what that meant. There were Roman Catholics, there were Protestants, there were conservatives, there were liberals, there were Christians who thought this was fake, there were Christians who thought it was legitimate, there were a couple of uh, agnostics, there were a couple of Jewish men on this. And so th- it wasn't a monolithic thing. And these uh, these scientists were all PhD or equivalent like terminal degree level uh, experts in their field, and they worked at highly respected places like Sandia National Labs, Los Alamos National Labs, uh, Caltech, JPL, Air Force Academy Weapon, and the Air Force Weapons Lab. Yeah, these were these were serious guys who went over there to do serious scientific work. And at the end of uh, the exhibition in October 1978, they were given 120 continuous hours to, uh, conduct, uh, a number of tests, as many as they could, 120 continuous hours, five straight days, nonstop. So they had to work in shifts. It was highly planned out. And, uh, uh, so they, they, they collected all this data. They did all this photographic evidence. They hauled a ton of gear over there. And then over the next four years, they published their findings. And they published their findings in over 20 different peer-reviewed scientific journals. So they wrote as scientists for scientists in a way that other scientists could interact with. And like I said, they're peer-reviewed. So uh, this, the, they're not writing for Christians. These, This isn't like they didn't have a blog, and they didn't publish it in Christianity Today, and they didn't publish it in like Newsweek magazine or the Discovery Channel or something. And there's nothing wrong with any of those outlets, but they're not academic peer-reviewed uh, environment. So, and that's what they were doing. Okay. So they were writing as scientists for scientists, not as Christians for other Christians. Mm. And, uh, and they determined that, uh, the shroud was, uh, you know, that the main question is what made the image on the shroud? Mm. And the answer is they don't know. There's there there they couldn't right. determine it. They could determine what the physical properties of the image, but not the cause uh, that the physical properties are the effect of. But mm-hmm. they were able to determine that the image was not made by paint, stain, dye, scorching, oils, um, a pigment of any kind, uh, spices, nothing. There was no uh, no natural or known artistic process that could have produced this image. And they came, they arrived at that uh, for, in, in a couple of different ways. Number one, the blood on the, uh, well, first of all, uh, there, uh, you'll still to this day read from skeptics that the, what appears to be blood on the shroud is, is actually paint, that there is paint on the shroud. Uh, Mm. So first thing to know is uh, it is blood, it is human blood, and it's type AB. Type AB is common in the Middle East and not common in Europe. Uh, Second thing uh, is that there is...
0: Which, Which is relevant because the earliest knowledge that we have of the shroud is in the 1300s so someone could say oh it was you know in france or whatever but the fact that the blood matches someone that is in the mediterranean area is relevant there
1: correct yeah okay so i mean that's not knowledge that any uh any medieval forger could have known let alone forged if they forged they, they i mean how do you forge that you'd have to like it It'd be gross to forge it. Um, they, but there, they, there is paint on the shroud. The 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 problem with the argument uh, that it created the image. Well, I'll tell you the rest of that argument in a second. But the the paint on the shroud isn't just on the image area. It's on the off image area, and it's only in in minute trace amounts. And that's important because what we know uh is that in the middle ages there were a number of copies made of the shroud and they were laying they were laid on top of the shroud in order to kind of certify them or bless them or make them official and it makes more sense that they would have contaminated or left trace elements from the copies on the linen than the other way around because the 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 image was not painted on the shroud and here's how the scientists know that Uh, This is a a linen cloth, and the linen threads aren't— a linen thread isn't just one thing. A linen thread is uh, made up of two or 300 kind of fibrils twisted together, microfibers, as it were, called fibrils. And the image area is created by a change in the chemical composition of the outermost fibrils of the thread. What that means is that uh, only the most superficial— uh, uh, fibrils, had this chemical change that darkened them. And paint, stain, dye, pigment, uh, oils, all of that stuff, scorching, would have penetrated deeper into the thread. It would not have just stopped on the outermost fibrils. And uh, the other thing is that the darker the chemical change was, the composition change, was uh, uh, indicates the distance from the material to the body beneath it so the darker it is the closer it was to the body and the the less distinct it is the farther away from the body so if it's laying over the face and it's touching the nose it's going to be dark there but as it as it bends around the side and it doesn't quite touch but it's really close it's less distinct and that means there's three dimensional information encoded into The uh, into this, uh, the dent, the change in the density of the chemical composition. So you could actually create a three dimensional model of the body based on that information alone. And in fact, the scientists did do that before they ever got to Turin. They did it in 1976. And it's one of the most famous images of the shroud. Um, So the uh, the other thing to notice about the image, even when you're looking at it uh, uh, with the naked eye, is that the image isn't distorted. Now, if the, if the image was created by contact with the body and there was like stains uh, like uh, blood uh, or paint or dye or something like that on the body, and that's what transferred to the cloth in order to make the image, that it would only look correct when the cloth was formed in the shape and contours of the body underneath it. But as soon as you flatten out, it would be distorted, right? Mm. It, would, it would look right if it's bent around the face, but as soon as you flatten it out, it would be distorted. And when you look at the shroud uh, in, uh, in the, in the uh, like you normally view it like that, it's not distorted. Okay. So it's not uh, from, from it, the, the image isn't made by contact, so the uh, the the properties of the image are very mysterious. They don't know how it's done. They only know how it's not done. And mm-hmm. it's not done by any known artistic means or uh, or any uh, natural means. Now, there are people who've been able to replicate uh, a, a pretty good facsimile of the shroud. Using stuff that would have been around in the Middle Ages, uh, whether that kind of process would actually have been known to anybody at the time uh, is up for debate. But at the same time, it it also does not capture all of the characteristics in the shroud; only some of them, enough to ballpark it, which is impressive. But mm. it still doesn't account for all the attributes that you see on the shroud.
0: Okay. So okay. So so how might uh, obviously, not everyone believes it's, it's genuine and not everyone agrees with the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the points you just made in terms of the conclusions one can draw. So what are some of the more stronger arguments against the authenticity of the Shroud?
1: Well, the uh, the strongest one, of course, the famous one is that uh, in uh, the mid 80s, the Sturp team uh, proposed another round of tests, and uh, because they, they they there was so much progress made in 1978, so there was another mm-hmm. uh, couple dozen tests that were going to be done. One of which was the radiocarbon or the carbon 14 dating test, and yeah. that became see and that was going to determine the age of the cloth itself, and that became such a, an important thing to uh, figure out, it got treated as its own thing. And there was a the 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 uh, Archbishop of Turin, who's the custodian of the shroud, and a representative of the, of the Vatican, and several stirp team members came up with a list of protocols in order to uh, conduct uh, uh, a test, the radiocarbon test. and they um, the protocols were they were going to take, seven different samples from the shroud from at least three different areas. They would be shared with seven different labs and the labs would uh, do one of two different methods for radiocarbon dating. And that's what was agreed on. And then when the time came in 1988 to take a sample uh, of the, uh, to, to do the test from, the Archbishop of Turin, who is the custodian, Unilaterally changed his mind and did not follow the protocols. He never explained why. He doesn't have to answer to anybody on this, Uh, but he allowed instead of seven samples, he allowed one sample to be taken. And that one sample was divided into three and shared with three labs, not seven. And they all used the same method, not the uh, a second one as well, okay. and six months later in October 1988, when the date came back, it was dated to about 1260 to 1390. So it was announced that it was a medieval fraud, and that's that that is where things stand on the uh, on the on the testing. Directly on the shroud, because that's when the uh, the church pivoted from examination to conservation and they've just preserved Mm -hmm. it and and not allowed any more testing to be done on it since that time. Uh, Interestingly enough, there was enough material that the STIRP team had to work with, that there were there was uh, one of the, the PhD chemists from Los Alamos, a guy named Raymond Rogers, continued to work on this issue. And in 2004, I believe, he published a peer-reviewed paper in an academic journal for, for chemists um, that conclusively proved that the material that was tested in 1988 was not original to the main material of the shroud, hmm. and so what he did is uh, part of, of what the the strip team protocol was. Uh, what what, what uh, part of what it, it said was, don't use uh, a uh, a sample from the top left corner. Uh, because that has a high likelihood of contamination. Now, uh, in this, the bottom half of the slide you're looking at, the main body of the shroud is kind of in the bottom right-hand corner here. And, and so Raymond Rogers, this chemist, had a thread from 1978 from this main body of the shroud. And then he had access to a thread taken in that top left corner for in 1973, and he compared the two. Now, the 1973 thread turned out to be cotton, coated in plant gum, and dyed. And the the sample from 1978 was linen, not cotton. Okay, linen comes from flax, not the cotton plant. It doesn't have any plant gum on it, and there's no dye on it. So this area, this kind of this whitish corner, uh, triangular shape, uh from the 1973 sample thread area that area right there that cloth has at least either a mixture of cotton and linen uh in it and that uh uh uh, was important because then he uh, contacted somebody who had a remnant from the 1988 sample material. And that 1988 radiocarbon sample material you could see is adjacent to that 1973 area. And that thread was examined. And it turns out that the, what was tested in 1988 is cotton and it's coated in plant gum it is not the same as the main body of the shroud. So it doesn't mean that the shroud is authentic. It doesn't mean that the shroud is from the first century. All it means is that whatever was tested in 1988 is not from the main body of the shroud and therefore cannot be used to date the shroud with any sort of authority. Um, now, he proved that another way in 2002, he had another paper that used photographic evidence to show there, there was a difference in the uh, chemical composition of the sample area from the main body of the shroud, and that's what you see up above. There's an x-ray and there's a transmitted light photograph, so light being shown through the backside of the shroud, and you can see that this denser area is where the 1988 carbon dating uh, sample was taken from, and that is different from the main body of the shroud. So it looks like, it appears to be, that there is additional material in that uh, that one section of the shroud. And we don't know where it came from. You know, the shroud's been in a lot of, uh, uh, several fires, uh, and there's been... Uh, Uh, patches added to it. There's been a backing cloth added to it. And there may have been other repairs using something called an invisible weave that could account for this. We just don't know. The one thing that has been proven is that whatever was tested in 1988 is not from the main body of the shroud. Um, the problem is that in 1988, when that date was announced, it was a big press conference and it was kind of this, uh, you know, it was, it was it was revealed as a popular news item, not a peer reviewed scientific thing. There's nothing wrong. I, there, nobody is accusing the, the, the 1988 uh, radiocarbon testers, the, those scientists of doing anything wrong that what they what they were given. Just wasn't from the main body of the shroud, so uh, but this the these two reports from Raymond Rogers, which are peer reviewed in an academic journal, uh, are not in a popular magazine, and therefore they don't they don't get the press.
0: Um, so that's where we are so the, so when we're talking about the testing of the the outer the the outer edges, right? They haven't yes. tested they haven't tested anything within within near the image itself
1: no and that was the whole point of taking seven different samples from at least three different areas is you'd get a variety of of places to kind of check and reconcile with each other and mm-hmm. that's that's what n- didn't happen and not only that but they took it from the most contaminated area on the shroud that they could set they, they could tell why
0: so, i mean if, uh, no
1: go ahead. No one no one knows why. The the archbishop never explained why. Uh but it's not like he's some evil villain. I mean it's frustrating to us, but you got to figure he pro I'm certain that he believes this is authentic. So if it's right. authentic, he's not going to want the anything missing from the main body of the shroud and he probably like was like, I, I don't want to be the guy who had like some snippet <laughs> cut out of the middle of the thing. So here, just take it from the area that I least care about. Well, the reason why you <laughs> least care about that area is because it's the most contaminated area. So you can, you know, you can see why he might do that. So I don't want to paint him as a bad guy. But at the same time, you're just like, oh, man, yeah. you, just, it, you blew it. Would it.
0: Me, it would seem to me if you want to really be more sure of its authenticity that you would grant that, you know? Uh,
1: yeah. But, but then uh, you risk uh, destroying or damaging the very thing that you want to preserve and authenticate. Mm,
0: yeah. Right. So. Interesting.
1: All right. Well. Um, oh, let okay. me throw oh, you, let me throw another one at you because okay, this is okay. super cool. All okay. right. So during the 1978 uh, test, they uh, the Archbishop invited one other scientist to participate. And he is a criminologist named Max Fry from uh, Sweden and uh, or Switzerland. Sorry. And he uh, he was a well-known criminologist and he had this kind of Sherlockian uh, method that he came up with okay. of placing people at crime scenes by comparing the plant life from around that area with pollen he pulled from their clothes using sticky tape so they uh they let him come down uh, with his sticky tape and he just used standard gift wrap, wrapping tape. It's crazy. It's just like you know like stuff used for Christmas presents. And okay. And he took like 38 different samples that were able to uh, collect pollen. He did he took some in 73 and he took the rest in 78 and he was able to come up he was able to identify uh, over 50 different kinds of pollen. On there. And this is really important because the pollen, not only did he identify, but it's associated with certain locations. Uh, In fact, it's associated that you can come up with an itinerary. It's northwest uh, Italy. It's Southeast France. It is uh, the area around uh, Istanbul and the uh, area there's a, uh, um, there's pollen from Palestine and particular to the area around Jerusalem. And the pollen from around Jerusalem is in bloom, which only happens in March and April. Now that's, again, that's something that's, that's crazy. That's something that, that, uh, there's no medieval forger, medieval forger would have uh, come up with, you know. So it, it, what makes this even more fascinating is when you look at the possible documentary evidence supporting the history of the existence of Jesus' burial shroud prior to its arrival in Europe, it corresponds exactly with the documentary evidence. This is the places where history says the shroud was,
0: and that's based upon the analysis of the pollen. That was uh,
1: that's the the scientific evidence of the pollen corroborates the documentary evidence of the shroud. Um, hmm. If the but of course it's not going to be called the shroud of Turin prior to sure. uh, well it getting to Turin right you know before it got <laughs> there. You know, it it wasn't in in, Turin until the later 1500s, but it showed up in Europe in 1355. So it existed before that, and before that it was probably what is known as the image of Edessa. And when you trace back the history of the image of Edessa, it comes from Constantinople, and before that it was in Edessa, Turkey, which is now Sanli Urfa, or just Urfa, and the history according to Eusebius of that traces it all the way back to um, Jerusalem.
0: Hmm. So
1: now there's a lot of different legends surrounding the image of Edessa and and contradictory versions of the stories and different permutations of it. but the basic contours of it have the shroud being taken to, uh, Edessa by either one of Jesus' uh, 70 disciples that he sent out or by the apostle Thaddeus. He appears before the, before the king, King Abgar, who had invited Jesus there to heal him of leprosy, but Jesus couldn't come. So he ends up, uh, after the uh, resurrection, sending Thaddeus or one of the other 70 to Abgar, uh, the shroud is taken with this person. they let la- they lay it over Abgar and he's healed and he becomes um, a Christian as a result of it. Uh, mm. But his grandson becomes uh, uh, reverts to paganism. And what Abgar had done was uh, he had folded up the shroud, probably put it in a box with uh, so that its face, was, uh, was 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 what on the outside so you could see the face, and, and the box had a window cut out of it so you could see the face, and he probably set it in a niche above the city gate of Edessa because that's where the pagan idols would, would be kept, where you would pay tribute as you entered into the city. So after Abgar became a believer, he took the idol down, he put the image of Edessa up there, Uh, And then his son was also a believer and left the image of Edessa up there, but his grandson reverted to paganism. And so the priest uh, decided that he didn't want to risk this being torn down or damaged, and so he bricked it up, he walled it up. And its memory was preserved, but the actual location of it was lost. And it stayed lost for a couple of hundred years until the year 544. And that's when the Persian army laid siege to Edessa. And during the siege, the bishop of Edessa claims to have received a vision. And an angel told him to go get the shroud out of the wall and told him where to get it. And so he opened up the wall. There's the shroud. And he lifted it up and started walking around the city. And he got to a certain point in the city. And there were a bunch of copper pots around there. And they all started rattling. And that's how the people of Edessa came to the realization that the Persians weren't only laying siege by, you know, to the city. They weren't just encircling it. They were tunneling underneath the city so they could come up in the middle of it. And so the people of Edessa dug a hole into the tunnel poured in some oil, lit it on fire, and killed the Persians, and that's how they broke the siege and survived. So the image of Edessa became very famous in 544, and it was kept there for 400 years, and then it was taken to uh, Constantinople, and it was kept in a church in Constantinople until 1204 when the city was sacked during the Fourth Crusades, and the Crusaders um, I mean, it, it, it just disappears for about 150 years and that's when it shows up in Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's, there's some debate about how it, it gets there. Uh, I'll tell you the most compelling story is that uh, when it is first displayed in France, it's in 1355 in Larry, France, and it's by a guy named uh, Geoffrey de Charnay, And uh, in, in, uh, so it, that's like says 1355. in 1204 there was a, uh, there was a Duke from visantian France or uh, not a Duke but a, um, uh, a knight uh, in the Crusades uh, his name was uh, Othon de la Roche and uh, he was at Constantinople, Constantinople when it was sacked and then he was made the Duke of Athens. And then he returned home to Byzantium, France. And his great-great-granddaughter married Geoffrey de Charnay. And uh, so that would explain how it gets into the, uh, you know, how it gets to his possession. Uh, and in Byzantium, France, in the Delaroche Castle to this day, there's a little chest that says this is what the 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 Shroud of Jesus was kept in. So mm. you you have this connection there. Uh, that's, that's fairly plausible. That's why on that pollen map, I actually have the location of Athens tapped down there. And the reason why it disappears from the record for 150 years is because right after the, the, um, the sacking of Constantinople, uh, the Pope made it illegal to display or sell relics without the church's permission. And so... Mm i mean he was the one who who hushed everybody up if you had something because so many of the relics that ended up in europe were stolen from Constantin- constantinople during the uh the the sacking of it in
0: 1204 hmm. that's fascinating man it's interesting and, and especially with the with the pollen with the the way that it's tested and the, this the images and the details it seems like all of these things converging it it it, it I can see how someone can be very intrigued, you know, maybe it's not a, you know, you can't, can't know a hundred percent, but it definitely, I, it, I understand why people will say, wait a minute, this is, this is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, it's like a cumulative case is what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. Well, you've given a lot of people uh, a lot of, a lot of information to chew on. I want to get to some of the questions. We have uh, some questions here.
1: Can I do one more piece of corroborative evidence? Sure.
0: Go, go for it. Go for it.
1: All right. There's one more piece of evidence that's super fascinating, I believe, and it is called the iconographic theory. And the idea is this, that um, there is in early Byzantine icons, there is a uh, remarkable correspondence in the features that you see. Uh, in all the icons uh, and it appears very suddenly in the middle of the sixth century all of a sudden there's this standard depiction of Jesus and they all have at least 15 odd features like a little triangle uh, uh, in the in in his brow and uh, the way that Uh, The tunic goes across his chest and the part in his hair exactly where it is. And there's a little wisp of hair. Usually Uh, there's a fork in his beard. You know, there's a bunch of things like that, but what makes that remarkable is that before uh, the middle of the sixth uh, century, Jesus was depicted in a wide variety of ways. So here are uh, just here's a quick sample of the earliest depictions of Jesus from between the second century and the early sixth century. So and I could I just like randomly grabbed some here, but uh, there there are a bunch of other ones I could have grabbed, but he's. Uh, sometimes he's a repurposed Roman god. He's a good shepherd. He's a fisherman. He's got long hair. He's got short hair. Uh, sometimes in that top left one, he's got a magic wand. It's a short staff. He's uh, doing a miracle. And and in some of the early icons and and uh, catacombs uh, paintings, when when a miracles being produced. Uh, by Jesus, he's he's got a short staff or a magic wand. And there are so many different ways of portraying Jesus that Augustine even complains about it. And then suddenly, in the middle of the sixth century, Jesus is standardized, and that's it corresponds with the recovery of the image of Edessa in 544. And uh, there, it uh, you can see there is there are a number of uh, features that are across the board on all of them, and they actually are on the uh, image of the the face in the shroud as well. And there was a this this was first uh, recognized in the 1930s by a French biologist, but in the 70s and 80s there was a British historian named Ian Wilson who really. Uh, started uh, developing this theory pretty significantly. And there was a a psychiatrist, a doctor uh, at Duke university who took this very seriously and started comparing the uh, oldest, one of the oldest icons uh, with the face of the man on the shroud. And so he, uh, uh, he thought, he found that there were about 175 exact correspondences between these two images. He called them points of congruence. Uh, the image on the, the right, that icon, is dated to 550, six years after the, sack of, uh, or after the, uh, the siege of Edessa was broken and the recovery of the image. That icon, the the Christ uh, Panikraner icon, comes from uh, St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of the traditional Mount Sinai. And the monks there told uh, Dr. Wanger that it was painted from the burial shroud of Jesus. And so what what this guy did is uh, he took slides of each of these images and he projected them on the exact same spot on the wall and he had a polarizing filter on each lens and then he held a polarized filter in his in his hand and he was able to isolate areas where they hit exactly together cuz i mean there's some resemblance looking at it side by side but you wouldn't think that the one on the right was copied from the one on the left necessarily but check this out okay it, so here's here's obviously the base image and Uh, I took, uh, using Photoshop, uh, ran a filter on it and combined the images. And this is the correspondence. Now stare at the tip of the nose, stare at the tip of the nose and watch everything fill in. The eyes seem to kind of open up the eyebrows hit exactly the, uh, the hair hits exactly. It's pretty incredible. Check this out. I did another one. Looks like. Looks like the same image, and it it's just worn away a little bit. So, like I said, there's 175 points of congruence here. He, he didn't do it with just that image. He also did it with uh, a, a coin from 695 called a solidus, which is the oldest coin that has Jesus's face uh, minted on it. And he found 140 points of congruence, I believe, on that. Um, it it's pretty incredible. So the the point, of course, is that um, there something happened in the middle of the sixth century that made people, the people who were creating icons and, and depicting Jesus, believe that they had an exemplar of an authentic image of Jesus that they needed to uh, try to adhere to, and and the best explanation for that is the recovery of the image of Edessa, and that. Uh, you know, would only be the case if they believed it was authentic. And uh, again, that is just another little point in this um, this uh, accumulative case for the shroud that it existed prior to the radiocarbon date.
0: Mm. Okay, that's that was I like that the image how you kind of uh, did that there. That's fascinating. Now, if we're um, before we go to the questions, I want maybe you can kind of give because uh, on my on my thumbnail. It's a, is this Jesus? Now obviously we can't know a hundred percent, right? And it's gonna be debated until Jesus comes back, right? And right. Jesus gonna be like, Yeah, hey, it was me, hey, you know. Um, I don't know why Jesus that is was a great guy. Jesus impression. <laughs> like, that was the best. I told you it's me, it was me, you know. Um <laughs> If you can give us your take uh, with everything that you've considered, in your own study of the evidence, and the things that you've heard in terms of counter arguments and things like that, what percentage would you say is your level of confidence that it is most likely the cloth of Christ and the image there is is in fact Jesus uh, or not? Where where do you stand there um, based upon your um, yeah? And again, you just this is an estimate percentage. I mean, obviously we don't know, but uh, where do you stand in light of in light of the evidence as you see it?
1: I think it's a pretty compelling case and I think it's far more likely to be authentic than not authentic. If you want me to like assign a a percentage to it, I'm probably 90 or higher. Uh, But the uh, uh, if it proves to be fake, Uh, or inauthentic in any way, nothing changes in my theology. The truthfulness of Christianity does not stand or fall on the authenticity of the shroud. You know, uh, I believe that there was a burial shroud, absolutely. Whether this is it or not, I don't know hundred percent but right. if this isn't it it's it's uh, it's got enough similar I mean it's got everything that you would expect to see on the authentic one mm. so uh, until there is a better explanation or any explanation really for that image um, I think it's got to be kept as a live option and right mm. now it's more alive
0: than than dead Wow. Okay, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this conversation. It's super fascinating. I mean, this is a, an area that I really have never spent a lot of time in. I, I've known about the, the Shroud. I think I've watched a couple of documentaries years ago, um, but I haven't really been following along, but I've always found it um, fascinating. So um, we have some questions here. Um, and Doug, I'm going to go with our uh, a hypothetical objection here. It's a theological objection. Maybe you want to speak to this um scott terry thank you so much for your 20 dollars super chat that was really generous of you thank you so much uh but scott says uh theological objection if god hates graven images why would he violate his law by leaving a graven image and then he puts in parentheses love the shroud just playing devil's advocate a bit
1: oh there's no devil's advocate this is i'm so glad you asked that question so I said, first of all, I apologize. I didn't realize I had my white noise machine going on this whole time. It sounded like I was flying in a jet and I was trying to figure out where it was.
0: So <laughs> That'd be impressive if you were flying a jet and doing doing this live stream, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. Um, uh,
1: so the one of the guys, uh, who, one of the photographers who was on the stir team was both a, a scientific, a technical photographer and and a documentary photographer. His name is Barry Swartz. If you're interested in Shroud, you want to dig deeper. Barry is the guy who runs the most credible uh, clearinghouse for all Shroud data, and that's Shroud.com. He keeps all the kooky stuff off there. Not all of the theories and uh, evidence on there agree with each other, but at least it's all serious talk and he lets all the pseudoscience he keeps it all from there what's fascinating about barry is that uh first of all the images that i showed you i got from him he took the image of the shroud we've been looking at uh he's the i guess it's been officially photographed three times and i i i i think that's right um and uh his his is the, the the one from 1978. So uh, I have a full-size replica of the Shroud. I got it from him. All the images I had of the stirrup team, I got them from him. If you want to see the Stirp team in action, go to Shroud.com and check out his, his stuff. You can see all the best images at Barry's place. Hmm. Barry was raised an Orthodox Jew. He's no longer a practicing Jew uh, I do not know what his religious belief is. I believe if anything, and I don't want to mischaracterize him, and I'm and so I apologize to Barry in advance. If anything, it would probably be broadly spiritual. Okay. okay. So he uh gives talks on the shroud, and uh he told me he was given a talk about 10 or 15 years after the stirp investigation, and somebody asked him if he believed it was Jesus. And he said, "Uh, I don't know. I haven't come to a conclusion on that. And he got home or he got in the car to go home. And his mom had been in the audience that night. His mom is an Orthodox Jew, fully, you know, practicing, observant, uh, Orthodox Jew. And she said, Barry, of course it's authentic. And he said, Mom, what are you talking about? You're an Orthodox Jew. And she said, there's no reason for them to have kept it unless it was authentic. And he started thinking about it. And remember who found it? You're talking about Peter and John, who were observant Jews. They were Orthodox Jews. They were trying to keep the law as closely as possible. And the, 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 uh, the guy with the with Scott is absolutely right. There is an image on the shroud of a man, and in the first century, Jewish mindset, that violates the second commandment of a graven image. okay? So an image on the shroud is v- something they very much would not have uh, wanted to been a part of. The other interesting thing is it broke, it didn't break just that commandment. It broke another Jewish law, which was it would have separate the, the there's blood. On the shroud, by taking the shroud out of the tomb, they would have separated the blood from the body. And in Jewish tradition, the blood, it contains the soul. The lifeblood contains the soul. So when a, a Jew dies a violent death, they collect the blood and bury it with the body. So if they die a violent death, uh, they, they bury the clothes, the bloody clothes with the body. If there's blood on the ground, they collect as much dirt as possible and they bury it with the body. And this is true to this day. And and it's also Passover. So by going in there and fooling around with burial clothes and stuff, they would have made themselves ceremonially unclean. So none of this story actually makes sense unless, unless they walked in and, and there's an image on the cloth, but it's an image not made by human hands. Because that's what the second commandment is against, is making an image by human hands. And this is actually the start of an entire genre of, of Christian art called, uh, called archipoita, which is an image not made by hands. And so if the, the caveat is it's an image not made by hands, and you can't separate the blood from the body if there is no body. Mm. And so it would make sense of both of those things. Mm. And wow. that comes from Barry's Jewish mom. Isn't that great? So <laughs> th- here's awesome. the best part of this is now Barry believes it's Jesus, but he's mm-hmm. not a
0: Christian. He believes yeah. it
1: is Jesus, but he doesn't believe in Jesus.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for that. Awesome. And thank you, Scott. Great question. Um, Lawrence Stanley says, short answer. No, Jesus had a separate head cloth. John 20 six through seven, while the Turin Shroud is all one piece. How would you speak to that?
1: That is, I'm so glad. It's like I've got plants in the audience. Uh, okay, so the when remember when I started, I said that what makes the Shroud unique is that it is the only relic that could be investigated scientifically, with one other exception. Here's the other exception. This is okay. called the Sudarium of Oviedo. Oviedo is a town in Spain. It's about 15 miles from the north coast, right in the middle. And uh, and this is uh, uh, this is a sudarium. Oviedo is the town. Sudarium is uh, the name of a cloth. I mean, it's just what a cloth was called—a sweat cloth—is what it is. And in first-century Roman world, uh, there were uh, you just carried this around in the hot, arid areas, and the tradition is that this cloth was wrapped around Jesus's head as he died on uh, the cross and was buried with him. Now, we don't usually picture Jesus on the cross with his head wrapped. It sounds really freaky, uh, but it's it's not like this would have been on his head the entire time. It would have been on it placed around his head as he approached death, and the reason is the very reason I just explained, you got to bury the bot, the blood with the body. And so this was built to catch the blood as he started, uh, spewing it, uh, as the pressure built up in his lungs and he was taking longer and longer at times before he could exhale, you know, the pressure being released once he once he pushed up on the nails and his ankles was so forceful he was spewing blood. And so once that starts happening, they wrap the uh, cloth around his face and what you're looking at are blood stains. And, uh, but it's not just blood stains, it's blood stains mixed with pulmonary edema in a six part pulmonary edema to one part blood uh, ratio. And that is what's produced in the lungs when a body is undergoing torture or extreme stress, such as asphyxiation, which is one of the ways in which you die in crucifixion. And you can see that there are these kind of uh, concentric stains growing out from the center there. So right in the center is where his nose would have been, the tip of his nose. And so the blood is getting caught in all the facial hair there. And if you look over on the bottom left corner, there's this kind of scarab shape, this scarab stain and, uh, that is where, uh, that would have been on the back of the head and probably where the, uh, uh, the long hair or the ponytail, the mountain in the shroud, there's some debate as to whether he had long hair or just a ponytail. Uh, but that's that's the width of the hair at that point as it's pinned to it. And just above it, you can see that weird viney pattern of stains. And that corresponds to a lot of the wounds uh, that you might expect to see in, left by a crown of thorns. And there's pinholes uh, right there that would uh, uh, indicate. It, this, this, it was pinned to the back of the head. Then it was wrapped around the front. So that's the stain right in the middle. And then it had to be folded back for a little bit on the right side. And that's why you get this mirror image, this almost rorschach type of image. The blood on the, sh- on the Sudarium is type AB, which once again is found in uh, – it was common in uh, the Middle East, but not in Europe. Also the blood on the shroud is both postmortem and life blood. There's only postmortem blood on the shroud. This one has life blood so they know it was placed on the on um, someone's body when they were alive and remained there after uh, this person was dead. They also had Max Fry come down and to to, uh, to Oviedo in 1979, and he found over 30 types of pollen from it, and he determined that the pollen was from uh, Spain, North Africa, and the area around Jerusalem. And now this is important because the documentary evidence of the Sudarium of Oviedo is that uh, it. Um, uh, It 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 follows it goes from Jerusalem. It was uh, well here. Let me just so we're not staring at that thing. Okay, so the idea the 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 history of the Sudarium of Oviedo is that uh, uh, the there was a chest, a wooden chest, made by the disciples of the apostles. They placed some relics in it, including the face cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus. So that's what you see in John 20. Now it's taken off when he's when he's buried. Uh, so it's it's not on his head during the resurrection. So if the res- let's say we assume the resurrection is what causes the image. That's why there's no image on this thing. Okay, it was only on his head uh, while he was on the cross. And then when he was taken down from the cross, it was on his head all the way into the grave. So in order to get those stains, you have to have the body in three positions. One is like this. So the, 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 it gets uh, the, the cloth doubles back a little bit cause they can't wrap it all the way around his head. And he's there for 45 minutes to an hour like that. And then there's another one where he's on laying face down on his forehead and with the feet, Elevated, and that makes the blood run down the bridge of the nose and pool onto the forehead, and he's that way for 45 minutes to an hour, which gives Joseph of they time to go per- get permission to bury the body. And then the body is flipped face up for five minutes or less as it's taken to the tomb. They get to the tomb, they throw the, the face cloth aside because it's not found with the the other burial clothes. Okay, mm-hmm. It's found in a separate place. So that makes sense of, of John 20. So the burial the this face cloth, the Sudarium, was placed in this chest, and in the uh, the mid sixth century or so, uh, there was a, uh, a, a a pilgrim named Antonius Martyr who went through the Holy Land and he went out to where John the Baptist did his ministry and there was a cave there uh, along the Jordan River that had seven nuns who were guarding a chest, and uh, this chest is said to have had the face cloth of Jesus. Uh, In 614, uh, the Persians came to sack Jerusalem, so it got moved to North Africa, probably Alexandria. In 616, the uh, Muslims moved into Northern Africa, and so it was put on a boat and sent to Carthage, Spain, or Cartagena, Spain, and uh, immediately taken to Seville, And then in uh, 657, the Muslims moved into Spain, so it was moved north to Toledo. And in 711, the Muslims had continued to move north into Spain, and so it was taken all the way to the northern uh, Spain mountains of Asturias. That's what the region was, and that king was able to repel the uh the muslims and he attributed the ability to do that to the protection offered by the relics and the chest so he founded the town of oviedo he built a cathedral and he put the chest in there and uh three times a year good friday and then there's two feast days in september on the 14th and 21st they pull out the sudarium and they hold it up as they give the benediction uh, and uh, it so the, uh, the, the, the historical documents, the documentary evidence, again supports the pollen evidence found by uh, Max Fry. And what's important about this is, the the correspondence uh, of the Sudarium with the Shroud would be another great piece of evidence that the Shroud is older than what is indicated by the radiocarbon day because the, the Sudarium has been in Oviedo or at least in Asturias since 7-11, uncontested.
0: Mm, wow, that's incredible. Uh, in so fact, people are throwing up all- these softball questions for you. <laughs>
1: How about this? So here, uh, here is the uh, the head, the where the head is on the shroud of Turin. You can see I've got the the wound cl- cluster of the back of the head marked out, and then that darker stain, which is what, what looks like indicates the long hair. And if you lay the sudarium on top of it, look at the wound cluster. Look at those dark blood stains. Look at how the sudarium fits to right on it. And look at the, the scarab shape. It hits right on that ponytail. Okay, and then if you look over at the face, you can see the blood go right down the bridge of the nose and pool on the forehead. If you uh, If we go up close, this is the main stain, and where it's going to hit on the on the face now look at the little three shaped squiggle of blood on the shroud that is the right hand side of that blocky stain of blood that's going to end up on the forehead so check this out here's the overlay it fits perfect and you can see the two kind of s- spots of blood over on the top right side of the head right here watch them grow cuz that's the blood added on the sudarium right there And you can see the kind of that bloom of blood caught in the facial hair all over that. So it, it, there's a, there's a kind of a a startling correspondence between those two cloths.
0: That is incredible. (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right. So let's, let's move along here. Um, we'll try to move quickly through some of the questions there's, uh, I suppose there's so much information so that you can go into any uh, different levels of depth in answering the questions. But let's try to move through quickly as we can so we can get to as many as possible. Uh, Truth is Beautiful asks, didn't the carbon dating give the wrong date? Second, what is the number one reason you think it's real? So kind of just uh, address the carbon dating real quick. And then you're kind of main, if you can pick one main thing that you think is the most powerful piece of evidence in your opinion.
1: The carbon dating did not give the wrong date. What happened was the carbon dating was of material that wasn't from the main body of the shroud. and so uh, there's there's to, uh, I don't want to I don't want to uh, disparage the scientists who did this work. Uh, their their reputation rests on doing accurate good work. and this is these are world- class labs and world- class scientists. Uh, my dad's a scientist and he actually knows, He's an acquaintance of one of the people who did the work. Uh so you know, I, I know the these aren't these aren't guys with an agenda other than doing excellent work. Uh so there's an, I don't believe there's anything wrong with the date they came up with. I think it's wrong to portray it as being from the main body of the shroud. That's mm. what was demonstrated. Okay. Uh as far as the most uh compelling a single piece of evidence. I always love the pollen stuff. I think that's pretty amazing.
0: That is pretty cool. All right. Let's see here. Thank you for that. Um, Okay. Yeah. Truth is beautiful. Also asked, how did they rule out pigment? Uh,
1: Pigment would uh, permeate the fibrils of the thread more than uh, just uh, on the superficial layer. They did not find any pigment at all let alone on on any layer on it if they had found pigment on it it would have penetrated more deeply than just the outermost fibrils of the thread
0: hmm. all right thank you for that i'm going in order so truth is beautiful asked a couple That's of good. questions so i'm just kind of going down the list but question what if the hoax what if the hoaxsters? well that sounds to that seems to beg the question that they That's were okay hoaxers, but, uh, but what if they were hoaxers and they crucified a man in the 1300s as jews did travel?
1: Uh, okay. Well, uh, your let's say that that did happen. Uh, okay. Just because they crucified a man, all that would do would give them a roadmap to accurately copy the wounds, but it wouldn't account for how that image got on the cloth, because just because because they know because they let's say they did actually crucify someone that still doesn't explain how the image got on the cross. It doesn't explain the pollen. Uh, and, uh, and th- you, you wouldn't get very much out of it. Ultimately it wouldn't explain the iconographic uh, evidence that you have. Uh, there is uh, there's, there's one thing I didn't talk about. There are, let's see. All right. Do you see, okay, there's these weird triangle marks, uh, pairs of triangles. That comes from a a fire that it was in in the 1600s. So the shroud has spent a lot of its uh, history folded up. And, uh, it was in a, it was in a metal box that was in a cathedral that caught on fire and the metal box dripped onto that one corner. And the way it was folded meant meant that it burned through 16 holes and there's patches on those holes. But in between the holes, if you look on the, uh, between the, uh, uh, left two pairs of holes and right two pairs of holes, you can see that there's this series of L shaped holes that are, they like form a seven or an L. Um, there is an image from the year 1195 called the Hungarian Prey Manuscript that uh, is a depiction of the women at the tomb finding nobody but finding an empty shroud. And on the shroud, they have this weird pattern of four holes making this L shape. Now, that's a good 75 years earlier than the earliest uh, date in the radiocarbon dating. And again, another reason just from artistic evidence that the shroud existed prior to the radiocarbon date. Um, I mean, there's just, it's, it's just one thing after another, after another, that's why it's a, it's a cumulative case. There's no one thing that's kind of a knockdown drag out, but, that's the kind of thing that isn't explained by saying, well, what if in the Middle Ages they found they just got a Jewish guy and they, they crucified him? That doesn't right. explain anything. Let's say they crucified a Jewish guy and then they put pigment all over him and then, then tamp down the cloth on top of him. It doesn't explain the non-distortion of the image. It doesn't explain the, uh, the chemical change only on the outermost fibrils of the thread. It doesn't explain the image at all. Actually, all it would explain is how they got an exemplar of what to copy, not how they accurately copied anything, because it doesn't it it doesn't give them a method for replicating the shroud.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Excellent. Um, Let's see here. Um, Slam RN asks, can you ask about the holographic image in the shroud? What's up with the holographic image in the shroud? <laughs>
1: uh, I don't know. I guess I'd have to ask for, to define the terms.
0: Okay. All right. Well, if you define the term, uh, slam RN and I'll catch your question again, I'll, uh, repost it here. Let's see here. Um, mm -hmm.
1: Sorry, I have an art degree and a uh, theology degree, so that that may be a completely accurate way of asking the question, and it's just outside of my ability to understand it.
0: Yeah, no worries, no worries. Truth is Beautiful has asked a bunch of questions. Some of them were kind of indirectly answered, but here's here's another one. Uh, If the apostles made holy icons to bow during the Roman persecutions before 300, and they protected scripture. Why didn't they protect holy icons? Or the Romans mentioned them? That's a. That's just the way the sentence is structured. I don't know if you understand what. The, what um,
1: is that I, I I'm not making any claim that the apostles made icons, um, okay. but. For argument's sake, let's say they did. Well, there were periods of time in the church where there were movements against the existence of icons, and they were destroyed or painted over or purged or whatever. And this is one of the reasons why the, the uh, monastery at St. Catherine's at the foot of the traditional Sinai is so important, is because it is so remote and because it was protected by both uh, Christian and Muslim rulers— uh, for various reasons it has the largest collection of icons in the world and uh, so uh, you know you uh, that the a lot we would have far more icons whether or not you ascribe any s- theological importance to them or not there were far more than we have now and that's mm. because there were times when there were movements within the faith to
0: get rid of them Mm, so, all right. Slam RN. Thank you so much for your $2 super chat. Uh, that's the question about the holographic image. So if you can kind of define your terms there, maybe he can tackle that question, but thank you for the super chat. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, let's move down, moving along. This is super interesting. You're doing an excellent job, Doug. I never great. doubted you. I knew you I knew you were going to do a great job. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Oh, slam. I didn't ignore it. I'm just going down the order. So I got your super chat. Thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) Let's see here. Um, I got it. Okay. I think that was the last one. Uh, There were a couple of other ones, but there were uh, kind of repeats. So, um, all right. I think this is a good place to stop. There is so much more, I'm sure, information one can go into. Uh, What is a good resource for people to kind of look up if they want to dig a little deeper into this?
1: I meant to have this uh, in front of me. I'm gonna go
0: grab it real quick. Hold on. No, no, no worries. I'll tell a I'll tell a joke. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you got? Are you in your house or a library? Are, are you at are, are you at home or in a library? This is my home.
1: This is my oh, office.
0: You, you got? Is that because I saw? I thought that was just one bookshelf behind you, but you kind of went and it looked like like multiple bookshelves. <laughs> Oh yeah,
1: I got I got a, i could go I can go over here. I can go way back over here. Like I got another guitar right here. Uh,
0: that's pretty intense. Nice.
1: And uh got I have another little alcove over here on this way, but
0: well, impressive. Uh, Some people like so. to see that. Some people like to see the uh the you know people's books in the back. I used to have a bunch of books in my background. People are like, did you did you read all of those books? Man, no, I didn't read all those books. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> well, people like yeah. that.
1: If you want to read a book on the Shroud, uh, probably the best one I think is helpful is this one. Uh, the Shroud of Turin, you can tell that I, I have done a little bit of reading on this one. So it's the Shroud of Turin, a critical summary of observations, data, and hypothesis. And it's by John Jackson. Uh, he is the Ph.D. physicist who was the leader of the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And you can order this book at shroudofturin.com. Or you go to you just go to shroudofturn.com. Check it out. But what's great about this book? It's not written in any sort of narrative style. I mean, this guy writes like a physicist, and mm-hmm. what he does is he organizes all of the data, and uh, and he categ- he categorizes it, and then he also rates it. So uh, there's there's like class A data, class B, class C, class D. Class A is the one that is like most accepted and most verified, and that's the all all the stuff I talked about today is class A level. There's mm. class B stuff where uh, it looks like uh, it's, there's a pretty pretty good reason a lot of good evidence for it but more work needs to be done there's class c which is uh, there's some work to be done but uh, it's probably iffy and then there's the don't go there stuff and that's class d so the, he he rates it all so if you want to go like oh i i've heard there were coins on the eyes okay uh, it's a fascinating fascinating argument and there's interesting evidence around it but it's and more work needs to be done so that gets rated as like class b one mm. of the things that he does is he goes through every single serious theory for the image formation and uh and then he compares it to all of he he has all of on this grid this kind of spreadsheet thing he's got the all the attributes that they have been able, that they need to account for, that were uh, derived from uh, this the the 1978 examination, sure. and then they compare it with all the different methods that have been proposed for creating the um, the image, and all of them fail. All all of the natural and man made uh, uh, methods fail. Uh, a, a, there's one hypothesis that seems to account for everything. And uh, and he did come up with that. And, and so that's the model that's being um, uh, looked at right now. It's called the fall mm. through radiation hypothesis. And uh, and this hypothesis, okay, remember, I'm not a physicist. I'm not trained in science. I'm just going to try to give you a popular version of it. But the fall okay. through radiation hypothesis is that uh, – Uh, a form of ultraviolet radiation emitted from the body as it dematerialized and the cloth fell through it as the body dematerialized, okay? Uh, A form of ultraviolet radiation emitted from the body as it dematerialized, allowing the cloth to fall through it. According to John Jackson, that would account for all of the features of the image of the body that we see on the shroud. Of course, that's not a natural process, and so you can't test it by replication or observation. It has to be tested theoretically, and uh, that's about as good as you got right now. That's the only one that would account for all the attributes as we know them.
0: Yeah. Doug, this was super interesting. I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this episode uh, <laughs> very carefully. This is um, really great. Thank you so much for sharing this. I mean, is this the sort of stuff that you, when you do your presentation, you kind of, you kind of, is there a recorded presentation somewhere on YouTube that someone can kind of see the whole thing or is it kind of something you, you, you go when you're invited and you give a presentation on this?
1: uh yeah uh this is what i do when i go and i'm invited uh, invited and and i give this all the same stuff but i have not recorded it yet i have meant to record it twice and then i get so distracted before i start that i forget to hit record so
0: yeah well rookie here's here's what truth (laughs) is beautiful uh said he says you gave the strongest case for the shroud i've heard i'm not convinced but i think it's possible it's from the 500 time period that's that's fair um, but that's I mean, it's interesting. The intriguing thing is that um, and strong arguments can be given. And I think that makes this kind of an interesting topic of, of discussion and debate. And um, if anything, hopefully it gets people just interested, more interested in the person of Jesus. I mean, who and the ultimate analysis, like we have the scriptures. I mean, we can know a lot about Jesus by reading the New Testament. Of course, this is just a, an, an extra cherry on the top if it's legitimate Um, And based upon what you said, sounds pretty, uh, the evidence sounds pretty convincing. Um, I'd have to go back and listen to it again, but um, super fascinating stuff, Doug. Thank you so much for sharing this. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I had fun.
0: Well, I had fun both times. So we have to find another topic to get you back on. So uh, I really appreciate your time, man. And folks, if you guys have enjoyed this discussion, you know, you guys, if you could do me a solid and like uh, the video, share it. Um, and, uh, there was someone who asked a question about the app I had mentioned at the beginning. Is that app still available or is that no longer available?
1: It's not, you know, trying to, trying to keep up with all the iOS updates is, is for people who are passionate about code and I'm just not that person. So,
0: (laughs) okay. All right. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Well, I had it when it was around and it was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, it's a
1: book, you can get the book form of it. So okay. it's available at apologia.com. You can get a physical book or you can get, uh, if you buy it on, uh, as a Kindle or, a, or on the iBooks, uh, store, mm-hmm. then it's a print replica of that book, but there's no, no more interactions or anything like that in
0: it. All right. There's
1: actually eight of those now in that series, but uh, okay. the apps are gone. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Well, that's cool because there's a lot of pictures and so it's really good to use with like teenagers and kids and stuff like that to look at, um, you know, cause it's very artistically made. So um, I enjoyed it when it was out, but um, yeah. that's all for this episode, Doug. Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much for your questions and, and kind of uh, going along with us for an hour and a half. Um, looking forward to uh, my next live stream, which is on Friday at 9 PM. Uh, that will be a topic covering. Uh, presuppositional apologetics applied to Mormonism. Uh, So please uh, join me then on Friday. Um, And of course, I'll just keep folks updated um, for future live streams. So once again, thanks, Doug. And until next time, guys, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you.